survey through the Bible. I hope it's been a help to you. And um, we are on Revelation. By the way, uh, it is singular, not plural. A lot of people say Revelations. There's only one Revelation uh, book that's given that is called Revelation. And um, they name it because that's what uh, it's referred to as in the very beginning of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him. Uh, and so uh, we're going to look in at this book. We're not, we just did a, a very lengthy study on the book of Revelation about a year ago, not quite a year ago, and finished that. So we're not going to do a lot of verse-by-verse uh, breaking down. We're going to really, because of the, the complexity of the book, the amount of material that's in there, it just would not be uh, able to be done in a, in a survey-type format. <coughs> so we're just going to try to give you a structure, if you will, of the book that will help break it down and make it a little bit easier for you if you go back and try to study it on your own. Um, because there are moments in the book where um, a large overview is given of a period of time, and then after that, they go back and begin to give you some of the details, fill in the missing pieces of that big umbrella overview thing. So if you don't understand that, sometimes you'll be reading something and you'll, you'll feel like, well, that's not, it's out of order chronologically. It's not. It's just that they, they went and gave you a broad view, and then they came back later on and started gave you, giving you the details of it. So we're going to try to give that structure to you today, help you know when that happens, when it doesn't happen, uh, make it easier for you to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together, if you will. <coughs> Revelation is a prophetic book. It's written by uh, John, uh, who was also responsible for writing uh, the Gospel of John, and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then, of course, Revelation. And um, four different times, John is mentioned by name, which is different from all of his other writings. He never mentions himself in any of the other writings. And because of that, around three, 300 A.D. or so, there, they, they began to call into question whether or not John the Apostle was the one who actually wrote these things. And isn't it interesting that uh, in the early church, when these writings would have been uh, literally in his handwriting, handed to the folks at the churches that it was addressed to. There was no question about uh, John being the author, but uh, a few hundred years later, uh, some guys get together and they say, well, it uses different vocabulary and it uses different terminology and different uh, style of writing and different grammar. <coughs> but we've got to understand this and uh, that all Scripture is given by what? inspiration of God. And the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They were they were writing the things that the Holy Spirit was telling them to write. And while, yes, John was an unlearned fisherman, and it seems like there was a very small vocabulary used in the Gospel of John, it was the words that the Holy Spirit gave him to write. And God, I believe, uses the vocabulary many times of these fellas, but he's not limited to that. And uh, when the Bible tells us that John's the one who wrote this, then we just believe that John's the one that wrote this. And uh, so be careful. There's uh, When you start studying some of these things, you'll look them up online or you'll read books and you'll have these guys with a lot of letters after their names and being very well educated. And they'll come up with some fairly strong, logical human arguments against authorship of some of these books. And they will use what are referred to as external evidences. All we need to know is, did the book tell us that that's who wrote it? And if it does, that's all we need. 
And so we need to be careful of, um, there's, there's a, a couple of types of study regarding uh, Scripture uh, called higher criticism, lower criticism. Uh, and these are, these are forms of, of um, critiquing Scripture, if you will. One of them deals with canonicity of the Scriptures, how we got our, our canon of Scriptures. <coughs> the other one deals with a lot of issues regarding inspiration and infallibility. And um, can I tell you this, that higher and lower criticism are all developed by men, and men are fallible. And any time that there is a discrepancy, uh, it's the fellows that, that try to pick apart the Bible with higher or lower criticism that come out and say, well, uh, these things are metaphorical or they're symbolic or um, they, they, they didn't really happen or, you know, like in the children of Israel, they, they, they passed over the Red Sea in the dry season in the shallow place. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the water stood up on the heat. They went by on dry ground. That's all we need to know. And uh, somebody asked a, a child one time, trying to trip him up, said, well, do you really believe that Jonah swallowed the whale? And the little child said, no, sir. The Bible says that the whale swallowed Jonah. But if the Bible had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I'd have believed that too, she said. So we need to be that way. The Bible is the Word of God. It's true, every word of it. And uh, it is infallible, and it is inspired, and it is preserved supernaturally for us in the English-speaking language in our King James Bible. So very important that we understand this. All right, let's look at this very quickly. First of all, uh, the book can be easily divided into three sections. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the first one is rather brief and uh, goes from chapter 1 and verse number 1 only down through uh, the end of the chapter. <coughs> Excuse me. One more time. <coughs> Try to get that cleared out. Um, so it's only that basically that first chapter, and that's the things which thou hast seen. So that's the title of the first section. John is writing the things that which thou hast seen. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, look in verse one, if you will, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is interesting. It says, "Which God gave unto him." So the Father gave this revelation to the Son. And then it says, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. So the Father gave this revelation to Christ. And then an angel was sent to give that same revelation <coughs> to John to write it. And uh, so we have this, this initial uh, portion of the chapter dealing with the things that John has seen. The Bible says uh, in uh, verse number uh, uh, two, who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he, what? Saul. So he's dealing here with the things that he had seen. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. Revelation is the only book of Scripture that has a promised blessing for those who read it. It also has a warning of a curse on those that would add to or take anything from it in chapter 22. And uh, very, very, this is a very uh, protected book. Uh, we're not to add or take away anything from any of the scriptures, but specific warnings given uh, by John in this particular letter uh, and warned of the, the, the problems that would arise from that. And uh, those that would add or take away from this book uh, John said, and the Lord uh, was telling John to write these things, 
that they would have the plagues of this book added to them for uh, changing this book in a very, uh, very stern warning, if you will. The book's written to seven actual churches. Uh, it, this book was written somewhere between probably 95 and 96 A.D. That's about the narrowest time frame that we've used in all of the books we've studied. Uh, it's a fairly, fairly narrow period of time that John could have or would have written this book. Um, and it was shortly before he died. He was the oldest apostle, uh, the only one who did not die uh, a martyr's death. He died of natural causes, old age. Um, they had tried to martyr him, and it didn't work. And um, they tried to boil him in oil, and it didn't work. And uh, he survived that. Uh, he was later exiled to Patmos and uh, was there for a number of years. Somewhere around 65 to 67 A.D., uh, John moved from Jerusalem, which had been kind of the central uh, headquarters, if you will, for Christianity uh, from the time of Christ until about 60 to 67 A.D. And in that time period, John moves from Jerusalem uh, to the city of Ephesus over in Asia. And uh, Ephesus then at that point becomes more influential actually than even Jerusalem was with regards to Christianity. The persecution was going on so great in Jerusalem that many of the Christians had been driven out. Just a few years later, um, Rome is destroyed and blamed on the Christians in 70 A.D. And the persecution just exponentially increased. John is, uh, so John is over in Ephesus. He ministers over there for a number of years and was probably well-known and, and probably traveled to, I would, I would guess, most all of these seven churches. Uh, knew them well. They knew him well. And uh, then he was exiled to Patmos, of course. And then later on, uh, shortly before his death, it seems like there was indication um, uh, that he was... Uh, released uh, for a short period of time before his death and more than likely went back to Ephesus. And that is probably um, uh, the shortest period of time right before his death where he was when he died, somewhere in that area, either in the city of Ephesus itself or in that region uh, when he died. And so that kind of gives you a little brief history of kind of where that at, where that's at. He writes Revelation while he's on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, which could possibly be another uh, reason for uh, some of the um, some of the differences in the styles of writing, things like that. Um, some people say that they, he had secretaries writing it in other the other times. Uh, he had people that were writing for him. He was dictating it to them. They were pinning it uh, and didn't have that option on Patmos. My personal opinion is this is what the Holy Spirit told him to write, and that's what he wrote. And I hold to that pretty strongly. Uh, so, uh, again, just try to keep in mind that, that just because there are different styles of writing does not mean that the Holy Spirit did not give them every word uh, to pen. And we need to try to keep that in mind. Um, he writes it to seven churches. Uh, they're Ephesus, uh, Smyrna. These are found in chapters 2 and 3 if you want to go through and look at them. Um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, out of those two churches, very strongly stand out for some uh, some very strong reasons. First of all, Pergamos uh, stands out because it's referred to here as the seat of Satan at that time. Uh, probably the place where Satan had uh, his most influence uh, during the time of 
the Babylonian Empire, it would have been the city of Babylon uh, under Nebuchadnezzar. There were certainly a lot of uh, devilish um, uh, possession, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had these sorcerers and these uh, soothsayers and people like that uh, there. Um, at this point in history, uh, more than likely was there in Pergamos. And then the other one that's of special note, uh, not that any of them are more significant than others, but just something of the uniqueness of, of the uh, where they were at spiritually, uh, is Laodicea. And because they were so uh, cold and uh, indifferent and, and really thought that they were very spiritual, they didn't realize they were that way. Uh, which, by the way, when that happens in our lives, isn't it amazing how often we don't recognize it? At least not initially. Uh, we begin to slide from from the things of the Lord. We get a little callous towards some things. We're not as zealous as we used to be towards them. And it happens without us really realizing. We start losing our joy. We start losing our, our uh, diligence in serving, our fervency in serving the Lord and walking with the Lord and spending time with the Lord. And it just becomes mundane and routine. And it happens without us even knowing it many times. And that's where Laodicea was. So he writes it to these seven distinct churches. And that's who it's addressed to. Now, while it is written to seven literal churches that were in existence in Asia at the time, it is very interesting, and men have have drawn the parallels of this, that you can look at the history of the New Testament church from the time of Christ until present day. And it follows a a pattern. uh, There there are periods of time, and it is chronologically seen that uh, the, the general characteristics of Christianity during these periods of time throughout history uh, very, very much so line up very distinctly with the characteristics of these churches that are listed. And they're even lined up in order uh, throughout history. So you can take, um, sometimes it's 100 years or 150 years or sometimes it's three or 400 years, but they seem to all follow the same order that they're given to us in Revelation. And so some people refer to them as seven uh periods of our church age. They refer to it as uh, the the church history, if you will. Uh, And it is interesting to see. A lot of people say we're living in the time of the Laodiceans because the day we're living in, we have a lot of people who are cold and indifferent. They are very religious outwardly, but uh, the heart is very, very cold and callous. And they they say they're wealthy and uh, have need of nothing. And the Bible says, no, not that they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And that that's really describes the coldness uh, of uh, their spiritual condition, really describes where we are today. And so a lot of people try to draw those parallels. Uh, I'm not saying that that is God's intent in writing it, but can I say this? God is so wise and so smart that He very easily could have used that as a way for us to see a pattern uh, down through church history. Uh, and you can take from that what you will, whether you want to hold to that or not. I do believe that there personally that there is uh, some merit to what some of these guys say about the pattern uh, of these seven churches being shown throughout the history of our church uh, from the time of Christ till present day. Uh, there seems to be a, a very close parallel drawn there. Um, so anyway, just leaning into that. The second section uh, is, um, well, let's go back, let's finish up the first section. So he communi- uh, Christ communicates this to John by the angel, um, and he gives a very... A clear portrait of uh, the triune God. Uh, From verses 4 all the way down to the end of the chapter, you're going to see God 
the Father, you're going to see God the Son, you're going to see God the Holy Spirit, very richly portrayed in this first chapter, uh, very clearly portrayed. Uh, that brings us then to chapter 2. Uh, and uh, from chapter 2 through chapter 3 and verse number 22 are the things which are. So we've gone from the things which thou hast seen to the things which are. This is the second section of the book, the, same, the things that are. So he's writing to literal churches, things that are in existence, and characteristics of those churches at that time, at that present time. And uh, in this section, uh, he gives a command to each of the seven churches. There's at least one command that you find as God writes to each of these seven churches. He also, to each of the seven churches, offers either or both a commendation and a condemnation. Uh, he usually gives them a commendation for what they're doing right, and then he says, but I have somewhat against thee because of this or something along that line. In a couple of instances, there is no commendation because there's not a whole lot of good what's being done in that church <coughs> at that time. And so God just brings the correction, the condemnation. So he gives them a command. He either commends or condemns them, or in some cases both. In some cases, he only commends them. Um, and uh, then we have uh, a correction that is given or a challenge. So if there's no condemnation to the church, he gives a challenge or a charge to them. If there is condemnation, then he gives them what they need to do to correct the situation. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? That God does that. That's, that's what the Bible is given to us for. It points out our sin, but it doesn't leave us there. It tells us how we can fix it. And uh, that's the instruction in righteousness that was spoken of by the Apostle Paul, uh, which is one of the reasons why our Scriptures were given to us. They were given to us for doctrine, uh, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And it helps us in our spiritual growth not only to have God say, you're doing this wrong, you need to fix it. But he doesn't just leave it in our hands to try to figure out how to fix it. He tells us even how to fix it. And I'm so thankful for that in Scripture. So those are the things that are. And then the large part of the book is the third section. That's what we're going to spend most of our time on this afternoon or this morning. Uh, the things which shall be hereafter. So the things that he saw the things that were right then, and the things which shall be hereafter. And uh, just to try to help you here, one of the key verses, we're going to see this again at the end of the study, but one of the key verses is chapter 1, verse 19, and it really kind of gives you the outline in this verse. Uh, he says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which thou shalt, uh, which shalt be hereafter. So it kind of breaks it down. That gives you the three divisions of the book pretty clearly in chapter 1, and verse number 19. So the things that we shall be hereafter are from chapter 4 and verse number 1 through the end of the book, which is chapter 22 and verse 21. John is translated to heaven. He's given a vision of uh, the majesty of God, the greatness of God. Uh, he sees at the very beginning of this vision, he sees God the Father sitting on the throne. Um, he sees God the Son as both the Lion and the Lamb. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's also the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, that was worthy to open the seven seals. And um, these, these two uh, figures that are mentioned in, in the onset of this, in chapter 4, are worshipped by, God the Father and God the Son are worshipped by uh, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, 
and the angelic hosts. They're worshipped by these three uh, groups of folks, or groups of uh, creatures. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, and the angelic hosts. They're, they're worshipped, God the Father and God the Son, are worshipped for two things. They're worshipped for uh, what they've done and who they are. They've worshipped, they're worshipped for the creation that they made and for the, the plan of redemption that was fulfilled in Christ. And these are things that are mentioned early on uh, regarding what they're being worshipped for. And by the way, uh, it would do us well. I know we, we talk about worshipping God, but when we worship God, I think it would do us well to think of who He is, first of all, and then what He has done. And those two things ought to facilitate, they ought to drive our worship. Uh, people, people get up today and they talk about praise and worship uh, as if it's something that we come up with and uh, you know, we sit down and we write a song and we come up with a melody or a tune and we say, okay, I'm going to give worship to God because I wrote this song. And it all becomes about them. But worship, true worship, is recognizing who God is and what He's done. And uh, if we can remember those two things, it will drive, it will, it will cause us. In fact, it won't even be something that we will have to make happen in our lives. It will be a byproduct of recognizing who He is and what He's done. We will worship Him naturally. It will be our reasonable response to our understanding of who He is and what He's done. And that's what true worship is really all about. It may cause you to shout. It may cause you to weep. It may cause you to sit in silence because you're in such awe of it and your words cannot express it. And I would say that there's not one that is any better than the other as far as the form of our worship. Uh, but it is important that we have true worship. That we understand who He is and what He's done. Uh, and so that's, that's the first part of this. And it's important because... He's getting ready to judge the world. And the world needs to understand and see who He is and what He's done for them uh, so that they are without excuse. They cannot stand there and point a finger at God and say, you're being unfair to me. He's given them the grace. He's given them the mercy. He's offered it to them freely. He's given people uh, freedom to go and express this message to the world. And they have been the ones to reject it, not Him. And uh, very important that he starts off with this. So uh, this is where John sees them. And then we see seven cycle, or three cycles of seven judgments each. It begins with what's called the seven sealed judgments. The seven sealed judgments are characterized with uh, war, famine, famine pestilence, uh, death, and uh, persecution of believers. And uh, that takes place from chapter 4, verse number 1. Uh, through the end of chapter 7, beginning first few verses of chapter 8, about 8, 3, 8, 4, somewhere in there, is where the seven uh, sealed judgments are at an end. And um, during this space, uh, all of this is taking place. There is a, a pause in chapter 7. So don't let chapter 7 trip you up. So as you're reading from chapter 4 through chapter 8 about the seven seals, you're going to come across chapter 7, and all of a sudden it's going to be like, what does this have to do with the seven sealed judgment? The pause is between the sixth judgment, or the sixth seal, and the seventh seal. And in the seventh chapter, 
God takes a pause there and has John write about putting a seal and a mark on 144,000 Jews and a multitude from every nation that have been saved in the tribulation period. I'm not going to go into a great length of detail on this. Uh, But there will be people saved during the tribulation period that are not part of the 144,000 Jews. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, There's going to be others, okay? Uh, There's going to be multitudes of them. In fact, it talks about many of them, many multitudes, a large group of people. Um, They're going to be saved. Now, I've heard preachers preach over the years. Well, if you've had opportunity to hear the gospel, your heart is going to be hard. You will not have opportunity after the the rapture takes place and before uh, uh, the tribulation begins or during that tribulation period. I'm not convinced of that. I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, It's a good thought. It's a good theory. I will say that they may have their hearts hardened. It may be harder for some of them that have heard than it may be for others that have not. But I don't find anywhere in Scripture that gives credence to that. Uh, In fact, I would think I would think quite the contrary, that those that have heard and have been kind of in, in between, I don't know if I should or not, don't know what the truth is, and have been wondering on those issues, uh, would be probably the first to come to Christ after the rapture. Um, I do know this, there's going to be many of them, great multitudes of them that come to Christ during the tribulation period, but not all of them. Uh, we studied when we were looking at this that there are going to be some people who are going to be so anti-God that even when they see his judgment, no matter how great it gets, they defiantly say, I choose death rather than uh, believing in God, trusting God as my Savior. Uh, But chapter 7 talks about these receiving a seal and a mark, and it's not the mark of the beast, but there's going to be a mark on them of some sort. The Bible speaks of that in chapter 7. Then he finishes up the seventh seal is actually the opening of the seven trumpet judgments that take place. So that seventh seal contains uh, the seven trumpet judgments. And that takes place from chapter 8 and verse number 2 to chapter 11 and verse number 19. Again, there is an interlude or a break in a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. God pauses once again. The trumpet judgments are what are called the woes. Uh, They're referred to as woes in uh, Revelation. And uh, these judgments uh, are very, very devastating. Uh, Of course, uh, those that have been saved, you say, well, uh, Pastor, if they're going to be saved, there's going to be a lot of people saved during the tribulation period. Uh, Then what's the benefit of getting saved on this side of the rapture? The benefit of getting saved this side of the rapture is they're not going to have to go through the tribulation period. Uh, The tribulation period is going to be awful. Uh, the first three and a half years are going to be really bad. Really bad. The last three and a half years are going to be unexpressibly bad. I mean, I don't even know if words can put it into, into, into play. But it's during the seven trumpet judgments, there's another pause that he puts during, between the sixth uh, and the seventh trumpet judgment. Uh, and it's during this pause that uh, another set of seven judgments is mentioned. Um, they're called the seven thunders. 
but the seven thunders don't don't happen. Uh, they're mentioned here, and I believe it's a very very good indication that while it could have been God's intention to have these seven thunders, that His mercy still at this time is still there. Uh, where He says it is enough at this point, and the seven thunders do not take place. They are mentioned here, but don't take place, uh, and they would have. Uh, been extended if God had not withdrawn them and pulled them back. Um, there's also the two witnesses that happened during this time, uh, this first three and a half years, and they minister for three and a half years, and then finally uh, they're overcome uh, by the beast. Uh, they're slain in the streets. They lay there, and then God eventually raises them and causes them to ascend to heaven, and the Bible tells us that all the world is going to be a witness of this. They're going to see it and uh, be aware of these things. Uh, this is the last time that we see any indication. If the if the thunders um, being pulled back and withdrawn uh, is a sign of God's mercy, this is the last time we see God's mercy. Because from this point on, after the first three and a half years, the Bible talks about His wrath being poured out without mixture. Uh, there is no mercy to temper the judgment, and so they've been given all the mercy they could. Uh, that, that God decides to give to them. He gave us tons. If we don't understand, we're living in a, in a period of mercy right now. God is prolonging time of His return so that men, and the Bible talks about this, that the period we're living in now is nothing more than the mercy of God giving men an opportunity to come to Him. His long-suffering towards this in this time period is His mercy being expressed. Even when the tribulation begins... While it's not as much mercy, there is still some moments, it seems, to be of mercy. He gives men, people, an opportunity still to come to it. And from what this looks like, these thunder judgments that were mentioned, that were withdrawn, seem to be, again, God's mercy in that first three and a half years. From this point on, it speaks of His, his wrath being poured out without mixture. Um, and we do not see the, 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 the mercy of God any longer in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Chapters 12 through 14 is kind of a miscellaneous group of some prophecies. There's kind of a pause before we go into the third cycle of seven uh, um, judgments. Um, so chapters 12 through 14, they contain some prophecies uh, regarding, they give a little more uh, information about the time of the tribulation period and some of the, the, the things that are happening during this time, the outpouring of the wrath of God uh, without mercy. Uh, is beginning uh, at this next moment, this next phase, the last three and a half years. Chapter 15 is a preface uh, to the vile judgments, which actually uh, take place in chapters 15 and 16 and, and following. The vile judgments, not V-I-L-E, but V-I-A-L. And uh, modern people, some people call them bold judgments so that you don't misunderstand what the word vile is when you're speaking it, but the Bible, our King James Bible refers to them as vile, V-I-A-L, judgments. Um, and these are poured out uh, during this time, uh, chapters 15 through chapter 19 and verse number 6, these vile judgments are poured out. During this time, Babylon the Great is fallen. Um, this, of course, is the, the big kingdom that the Antichrist had, had raised up, uh, the resurrected Babylonian Empire. It's fallen during this time. The marriage banquet of the Lamb is made ready. Uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, leads the armies of heaven into battle against the beast and the false prophet, and he casts both of them into the lake of fire. 
in chapter 20, the dragon, this is Satan himself, is bound for about a thousand years, and he's cast into the bottomless pit. Uh, during this time, Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. We get to rule and reign with him. Um, and then Satan is released for a short while. The Bible doesn't tell us how long, but it says a short period, a short while, to, uh, again, come out and spend some time. And the reason for this is that there will be some, and this is an interesting thought, there will be some people that survive the end of the tribulation period that will be ushered into the millennial reign. And then there will also be those of us that were raptured. And we will have some form of a glorified body, which is going to be a little different. And we're going to come back and rule and reign with him, but there will be children born during the thousand-year reign. And so, again, God giving every man a free will, Satan will be loose for a short period. And these folks will have the same choice that you and I have had, to freely choose Christ or to reject Him. Um, and they'll have that same op opportunity or choice to make. And uh, it was uh, right after that, of course, Satan is going to banish uh, Satan for the rest of eternity. Uh, a new heaven and a new earth are going to be created, chapters 21 through chapter 22, uh, first part of chapter 22. This new heaven and new earth are going to be characterized uh, by uh, sin not being there anymore, uh, death not being there anymore, pain and sorrow not being there anymore, and that's the day we're looking for. Uh, can't wait for that time period. Uh, the new Jerusalem is described as a, a cube. Uh, shape, and it gives some description of that, its walls, its gates, and Christ is the light of it, and there's no need for the sun, and just a beautiful depiction of the New Jerusalem. And then in chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, we find the conclusions of the book given, and these are the conclusions after all of this has been given, uh, and I've told people this before, prophecy is not something that we study just because it's neat, or just because... It's neat, uh, a nice thing to know about. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Prophecy is no different. It is there for our profiting. It is there to help us. So there are some conclusions given at the end of the book. And uh, one of them is the, the exhortation that Christ will come, or the observation that Christ will come quickly. Now, it doesn't mean that he'll come in short order, but it means he's going to be coming suddenly. It's going to be coming unexpectedly. Um, other passages of Scripture refer to um, uh, the, uh, the fact that he's coming without warning and that type of a mindset. So it tells us in the very end of the book that Christ is going to come quickly. And because of that, uh, it says, let, uh, let them that will drink of the water of life freely. And so again, make sure you're ready. Uh, it's a motivating factor to say, are you saved? You don't want to go through the tribulation period. You don't want to do this. Um, you think the world's bad now. Uh, we have no idea what it's like to suffer yet. We haven't even come close to suffering uh, when it comes to the things that will happen during the tribulation period. And so one of the motivating factors of prophecy is 
He's coming quickly. His coming is imminent. It can happen at any time. It is going to happen. Make sure you're ready. And that's a warning to those that are lost. And then I would say this. There's another warning to Christians. And you know what that warning is? Make sure you're ready. Not so much spiritually as far as your salvation is concerned, but are we going to, uh, is He going to come back and find us watching and waiting? Is He going to come back finding us with our hand to the plow doing the work that He's called us to do? Time is short. Even if Christ does not come back in our lifetime, time is short. Our life is a vapor. It's gone. Um, I told my son yesterday, I'm excited he's 16 for him. But as a dad, I, I'm not excited to see that. I, I, I think he's, he's grown up too fast. If he's grown up that fast, uh, my time's getting shorter. And uh, he told me yesterday we were talking about some things and he said, Dad, don't worry. I'll take care of you when you get old. I said, yeah, you keep saying that, but I'm old. When is, when is this taking care of me going to happen? Been waiting on that for like five years. You hadn't done it yet. And uh, we're kind of joking about it. But life is short, isn't it? Life is short. And one of the things that prophecy ought to do is, for those of us that are Christians, it ought to motivate us to live a life that is pleasing to God so that when He comes, we're not embarrassed and we're not ashamed of the life we're living but also that we serve the Lord, that we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven during this time while we can. Work for the night cometh when no man can work. And um, prophecy is not just something that's neat to study. It ought to be something that motivates and is something that drives us and puts zeal and fervency in our heart to serve the Lord and to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And so I hope that will help. So uh, hopefully I'll give you a little bit of a framework, if you will, uh, a skeleton uh, of the book of Revelation, and then you can kind of study it and put the meat on the bone, so to speak. And I hope that will help give a little bit of understanding so you don't get confused as you go through some of those chapters. You're like, well, how does this relate to all of this going through? Uh, Hopefully that will be a help to you. All right, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for the time you've given us just to do the surveys of these books and be able to have a little better understanding 